0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepened in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. As we close out this year, let me say welcome. I want you to know that we've been in the process of working our way through the Gospel of Luke, a gospel that I think presents Jesus Christ as Uh, the pinnacle of humanity, and it's humanity at its best that we've named this series because we get to look at the perfect man and have an opportunity to emulate uh, his life, and so we've been working together through this gospel verse by verse, and this morning, if you would, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus will be teaching his disciples and us together to pray. Let me recall for you, though, last time when I spoke to you, we uh, talked about priorities, And as we closed out chapter 10, we talked about the fact that not everything that clamors for attention in our life is of equal value, and hopefully that helped some of you settle on some priorities during the Christmas season when everything is grappling for your attention. We saw Jesus Christ speak to a a housewife who was frenzied, who was frustrated and overcommitted, and uh, we closed out chapter 10 with Jesus saying to her these words, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only a few things are necessary. Only a few things are essential. In other words, there are some things in life that are really important, but there are other things, in fact, many things in life that really aren't so important at all. And the great challenge we have for ourselves is learning how to distinguish and discern and then choose the best things. Because in making those decisions, we go from a worn-out life to what I call a well-invested life. And that's what Jesus was encouraging this young lady to do. We all know, though, that discerning what to give our time and our attention to, those things to uh, call important as opposed to those things not so important, is made all the more difficult because we live, quite frankly, in a world that has topsy-turvy values to it. Things that really are cheap are presented to us as expensive. And those things that are very, very valuable is oftentimes glossed over, is not so important at all. It reminds me of the uh, story of the prankster who moved into a retail store and for a joke switched all the price tags on all the items. And the next day, people came in to find that mink stole selling for $6.50. A real bargain after Christmas sale, I might tell you. And a box of golf balls at $500 a piece. Now, that's laughable, but in our world, the reality is is oftentimes we live in a world of mixed-up values. And yet, we must choose and discern that which is best for us. Sometimes that's very difficult, but we have to make those hard choices if we're going to live a well-invested life and to stay with it throughout the year. And I don't think there's any place better and more fitting then right now, the last Sunday of the year, when from this Sunday till New Year's is ushered in, people go into kind of a reflection mode. Are you already in that? Got over the Christmas celebration, walked through the post-Christian depression. Now you're kind of in the reflection mode of what you want to be different. And uh, people normally make those resolves, those New Year's resolutions about how things are going to be different in 1993, and how I'm going to focus on those things that are really important. I want to start out this morning speaking to just the church family, not to those who are guests here this morning. But I'd like you to jot down two things that I think are going to be essential for us as a church family to be successful in the year 1993. The first is this. It's going to be important for us as a growing body to reaffirm our commitment to make Sunday morning both a time of worship and service. A time of both worship and service. I say that because that has been our value from the beginning. But as we grow, it is so easy to assume that I'm not needed here. And it's so easy to make Sunday morning something that is, well, quite frankly, it's something that is um, negotiable as far as my commitment to worship. You know, if you read through the pages of the Scripture, one of the things that comes across loud and clear for the people of God is that worship is not anything but essential to your life. Not that God needs the worship, but that you need to worship. Now, I want to take that down to some very practical uh, statements for you. If 1993 is going to carry that essential, then you've got to make the commitment It can't be somebody making the commitment for you, but you've got to make the commitment to make worship something that's regular and consistent in your life. To take that a step further, because some of us will serve in the learning center with the youth group or uh, work as an usher, or whatever it might be. May I tell you that it's so important that you not see those times of service as a substitute for worship. There, There are some of us who serve in the learning center and go home. Some of us who work in the youth and go home. But I want you to know, when you serve, if we've really made Sunday morning sacred to the Lord, it gives us both the time to serve and worship. And that's so important. And when we talk about service, what we're talking about is setting aside a whole morning so that we can worship, but we also have the time to serve as well. Uh, In a growing family like this, as you know, there are going to be a lot of needs We have needs for teachers in the learning center right now. You'll notice that on your ministry spotlight. Uh, Men and women, uh, singles, married people, to work with our children because children are such an essential here, but to serve in the learning center. We need you as a family. We need you to serve. We need people to serve as traffic control. Bill talked about that, uh, you know, as he came out as the prophet. But I want you to know this. It makes a big difference, a huge difference to come into a large church and drive into the parking lot and have someone greet you and help you to know what to do. It's a first statement that invites people in, the same way with greeters and with ushers. And did you know we have needs in all those areas? And all it requires of you is 15 minutes before the service and 15 minutes into the service to help us fill those needs. And there's many of you who could make a major league difference by giving a small amount of time. But if you hear us saying that and you've not made Sunday morning a priority and essential, you will hear us trying to coerce you into something. And we're not at all. We want you to take the time to say, I belong to a huge family. And in that huge family, there's some essential things that I need to do. And one of the things that I need to do is to make Sunday morning sacred for this church family, the whole morning, so that I'm available on a regular basis to worship, but I'm also here available to serve when I'm needed. We need you in that regard. And if you don't make that, what happens is, is that the tyranny of lesser things begin to draw your attention away, you become sporadic both in your love of God and love for the family, and you lose. You lose. And in 1993, we don't want any losers. We want winners. So, treat Sunday morning as sacred and as a time, the whole morning. Give it to the Lord for a time of worship and service. Then the second essential, I think, for 1993 that's so often overlooked that we're going to see in our text this morning in Luke chapter 11, so that 1993 will be all that it can be and should be, is that we need to make a fresh commitment to pray. And not just to pray, but to pray as Jesus taught us to pray, and that's what we're going to see here this morning. So look with me in chapter 11, verse 1. You know, uh, Jesus kind of uh, coaxed Martha to get her priorities straight when He also pointed to Mary who was sitting at Jesus' feet and He says that Mary chose the best thing. But when we come to chapter 11, we see Jesus choosing the best thing in the midst of an incredibly pressure-packed schedule. We find Him moving out alone to spend time at the feet of His heavenly Father. Look at verse 1. And it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, that after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Uh, When I read that statement, I took out my concordance. Uh, That's a Bible uh, dictionary, so to speak, where you can look up all the verses in the Bible. And I looked for all the places where the disciples came to Jesus Christ and beseeched Him to teach them something. You know, they tended to be know-it-alls. So I wondered, where did these guys ask Jesus to teach them something? And you know, in the whole ministry and life of Jesus Christ, here is the only spot that they made that request. Right here. But they saw something extremely interesting as they looked at the life of Christ. And it's not hard to figure out, you know, why? Because when they watched Him, handling this pressure-packed schedule as they saw him under stress. And yet, they also noticed he always seemed to be at peace with himself. He always seemed to be under control. He always had this keen sense of, of purpose and direction in his life. And as they watched that, because they've been with him now over two and a half years, they, it finally began to dawn on him that all that power, all that sense of inner directedness and peace was connected in these times that he drew away to pray. It's interesting sometime for you to pick up the gospel and just read through a gospel of the life of Christ and note the many times Jesus stole away for a moment of prayer, spent a night of prayer, offered himself up to prayer while the disciples were standing around watching him. But it finally dawned on them, this is where he's getting his power. So they came to him and they made this request, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, prayer, for many of you, might seem like a very simple exercise. It's, I talk to God. But I want you to know, these guys were asking for insight into the skill and the art and the discipline of prayer. Because if your prayer life, like so often mine, seems to be maybe fruitless or rote or tiring Perhaps we haven't learned the true pattern of prayer, and that's what Jesus wants to offer them. You know, all of life, all of life's successes, whether it's in the business world, in the sports world, whether it's in in our personal life and things that we do, everything has some successful patterns to them that we need to stay within. Uh, My youngest son is just now starting to play basketball, and one of the things when he's starting basketball is you don't teach him fast break at the very beginning. No, you teach him basic patterns like passing and shooting and dribbling. And when you dribble a basketball, if you watch these young boys when they first start, their tendency is to take the ball and pat it with their hand and bounce up and down. They're always losing control. They're hitting as hard as they can. And what you have to do is say, no, wait a minute, there's an art to this. So here's what I want you to do. I don't want it to hit the palm of your hand. I want you to bend your fingers. So when that basketball comes up, it catches those fingers because the fingers are what do the walking. It's what controls the ball. And you don't use your whole hand. You've got to learn that the power here of control is in the wrist. And as they begin to learn that discipline, that fundamental pattern of dribbling, as they get it down, as they make it an art, then they can expand to dribbling it behind their back or dribbling it through their legs or doing some of the wizardry that you see when you watch the NBA. But it starts with a basic fundamental pattern. And that's what Jesus gives. This prayer is not the only prayer you can pray. When he said, Lord, teach us to pray, he didn't say, okay, here it is. This is all there is to prayer. What this is, is a pattern for you to follow your prayer life with. That's why we want to examine it closely. So here's what he said when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Well, that's it? Yeah, that's it. That's your pattern. Well, for it to be a true pattern, you've got now to draw up close and examine the pattern. That's what we want to do for just a moment. So first of all, let me just show you the arrangement of this prayer. If you'll notice, what should stand out to us immediately is the focus of this prayer starts where? on God, on His name, on His kingdom. Now, that's important because where do most of our prayers start? On us, on our wants, on our needs. Maybe that's an insight into prayer that we need to see first and foremost. Real prayer does not begin with, Lord, I need this. Lord, I want this. Lord, help me in this. I this, and me that." What that is, is that's illiterate prayer. That's uneducated prayer. That is prayer that evidences that it has not been with Christ in the school of prayer. It's prayer that has not mastered the A's, B's, and C's. That's what we're saying here. Educated prayer, instructed prayer, disciplined prayer always begins with God. That's what Jesus is telling these guys. That's the pattern. It begins with God first, His reputation, not me and not my needs. You know, the Apostle James tells us why this is so important. Now, don't turn over there, but if you looked in in the little letter of James that James the Apostle wrote, he said this in chapter 4. He says, you ask in your prayers and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The Living Bible puts it this way. You don't get what you ask for because your whole aim in prayer is wrong. You want only that which will give you pleasure and not God honor. Now we want to draw back and say, no, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to, to, to have God help me. But now wait a minute. How can He really help you if what you're asking for may in fact oppose His own purposes and direction and plans. You see, there's great wisdom here. It's this. Starting with God first straightens our aim, clears our focus. It begins even in the very beginning to serve as a filter for sorting out legitimate and illegitimate requests when we have to go through God first before we come to us second. So for those of us wanting to learn a healthy pattern of prayer. This is an important opening lesson. And by the way, may I say, as I've listened to people pray my whole life, as I've knelt next to someone who I consider a real saint, it is amazing that they follow this very pattern. Their opening words are not, Lord, help me because I'm really in trouble. Their prayers are usually, Father, you are an awesome Wonderful God. Your your word is true. Your purposes are sound. Your kingdom is a kingdom I want in my life. That's how they start. They begin to rehearse God in their minds. They begin to rehearse His kingdom, His will, His purposes, His plan. Because that serves as a filter later for sorting out what I'm going to ask Him for and what I want from Him and what He can do for me and can't do. That's why it's important to start with God first. Now I want you to notice, this prayer focuses really on several significant words, and I'd like to do that for just a moment, these words and phrases that are here. Notice in the opening it begins by addressing God as Father. I want to focus there for just a moment because some of us have been hurt by our earthly fathers, And we have a difficult time taking that concept and placing it on God as our Heavenly Father. Maybe we've been abused by our Father. Maybe we've been left by our Father. And when that happens, the concept of God as Father becomes distorted, becomes difficult to grasp in its fullest and most meaningful way. Rich Campbell wrote in the Excel this week about J.B. Phillips. Maybe you read that, who wrote the Phillips translation of the Bible? An excellent piece. J.B. Phillips said that all his life, even as he went through writing and rewriting that text to make it available to lay people, he struggled with the concept of God as Father because His Father abandoned him. Now, if that's true of you, don't give up because it's important to know the Father we're talking about is a Father who meets that term in the fullest and finest sense. There are others of us, by the way, who readdress God, not as Father, but they then tell that they don't know God the way they should because this is a prayer to tell us who we're addressing. When I was in college, I often heard God addressed as the big man upstairs. You hear that? What does that say, the big man upstairs? Uh, There are times where I listen in formal situations to prayers that are prayed that you might say are more politically correct. When we address God, we don't address Him as Father, but we say, "Oh eternal being, O oh, omnipotent one, O oh, holy other in the universe. Maybe you've heard prayers like that. But here's what I want you to know. Let's say I'm going to go home, and I walk in the door, and my son runs up to me and says, "Oh holy other of Fellowship Bible Church. How do you think that would make me feel? Or what if my youngest son, when I opened the door, said, hey, the big man's home, I want you to understand, we have a father. That's who God is. And that term has tremendous dignity and reverence to it. The thing I love to hear when I open the door is daddy's home because it exudes strength, magnetism, bond, love, security, protection, And so when you come in your silence before your heavenly Father, and you say, Father, you're addressing a person, not an impersonal force. You're addressing someone who is already predisposed to loving you. He's already committed that direction regardless of how you've performed. And you don't have to earn that love. He's already predisposed to giving himself to you. And as a father, he exudes care and compassion and love and strength and protection. That's who you're addressing. One who will never abuse you. One who will never neglect you. One who will never abandon you. But in knowing him, you will find help and trust and wisdom and truth for a lifetime. All that is wrapped up in this very dignified term very personal, very engaging Father. That's what we're talking about. That's who you know when you pray. And that should draw you to Him. Then it says, hallowed be thy name. What do we mean by that when it mentions that? Well, to hallow something, if you look it up in a dictionary, is to treat something carefully with dignity, with reverence, with honor. And so when I say, hallowed be thy name, I am declaring at the outset, even as I begin to pray, that my intent in coming in prayer is to uphold and honor and to treat carefully the name of God. Now I want you to know you can't do that because it's a contradiction in terms. If you come to God with request or you come to God and say, I want to honor and treat carefully your name when in your everyday lifestyle you are choosing to do things that would defame him, compromise his name. That's a contradiction in terms. If you're lying or cheating or stealing or committing immorality, if, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, you're dishonoring your wife, men, it says your prayers will be hindered, or vice versa, or mistreating your children, if you're disobeying consciously a specific call of God on your life, you're not hallowing His name. See this is a time of reflection when you say, Father, hallowed be thy name. You're saying you have an intent. Even as you move into your request, I have an intent, I want to honor you about what I'm going to say here. But if you don't have that intent, your prayers automatically short circuit and short out. That's why in Isaiah it says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins has hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear your prayers. You know, there have been times, quite honestly, when I find my prayers dry and rote and meaninglessness, with meaninglessness, and I want to draw back and stop altogether. Maybe you felt that way. And I have been encouraged by even this text that in those times, maybe I need to start by doing some soul searching. Kind of like David did when he said to God, search my heart and know my anxious thoughts. Try me and see if there be any hurtful way in me. Because what I've come to understand, this is what David says, if there's hurt in me, if there's sin in me, if I'm possessing something that keeps me from hallowing your name, I know that there will be no answer, that I will not have your ear, that your face will be turned from me. A good place to start for some of us in prayer is just to review our life and ask this most basic fundamental question. Am I committed to honoring God's name in everything that I do? Or are there closets and doors or areas in my life where I am compromising His name and He's withholding His power and His presence from my prayer life? It's an essential question to ask if you want to be effective in prayer. Then it says, thy kingdom come. Uh, When it says that, it's not a longing for heaven here. Uh, What Jesus is teaching these guys, it's a cry for God's will to be done in my life right here, right now on earth. That's why in the other prayer that's uh, similar to this one over in Matthew chapter 6, it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer for something to go on right now in my life. It's when I come to this part, if I expanded it practically, I'm saying I want to be the kind of person you want me to be. I want to be the man you want me to be. I want to be the woman you want me to be. Lord, I desire for your kingdom in my finances to come, your kingdom in my work to come, your kingdom in my marriage to come, your kingdom in my dating life to come, whatever it may be. Thy kingdom come. That's my desire. Thy will be done. That's what I want. Only after we approach God as a personal Father, declaring to uphold His holy name, desiring to do His will on earth, only then, if you'll notice, now we come to verses 3 and 4. Our request. But here's what I want you to note. For those who are schooled in prayer, who are disciplined and instructed in prayer, by the time you come to this point of the prayer, what we need and what we want has been properly refined and filtered by who He is and what He wants. You see that? But when we start with us first, all of that is lost. We get caught up in all of what we think we need by our perspective, when in fact what we need to do is start with His perspective to then refine and filter what we think we need by what He says we really do need. And then you'll notice when it comes to that part of the prayer, there are three sections in verses 3 and 4. You might underline them. Give us, forgive us, and lead us. I think the give us part is just now folded in as one small section, isn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. The word daily means our needful bread, the thing we really need. What hits me here is our material request in this model prayer have been sharply reduced. Not to wants not to indulgences, not to comforts, just to needs. Because they're more important things than just wants, like the next part, forgiveness. See, there's a focus in this prayer as much to giving as to forgiving. Not just being forgiven. If you'll notice that, we forgive, and you notice in the other prayer it says, as we forgive those indebted to us. Did you know there's a connection between experiencing the forgiveness of God and offering forgiveness to those around you. Every person in this room, I have no doubt, has an offense against somebody. It might be a mom or dad. It might be a relative. It might be a friend, a previous friend maybe. It might be somebody at work. But there's this barrier called unforgivenness. And I want you to know that when you pray, the pattern of prayer, what God is going to ask you to do at this point is He's going to ask you to think about those relationships and expand the reconciliation that He's offered to you by you offering it to those people around you. It's a horrible thing to have to walk through a group of people and purposely try to ignore somebody that you have an offense with. And sometimes they have real indebtedness to you What this model prayer teaches us is that our goal, our aim, our right aim is to let those people be gone in their indebtedness. Let them go. Let them be free from their debt to you. And why? Because God has released you in the same way. Forgive them. Let them go. And then when he gets to the leadership, the leadership here is not a a personal request for success. You notice that? The leadership this model prayer offers is to escape personal defilement. And why is that? Because hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. That's why. All of these things here are given to help us guide ourselves in prayer. Now, what I want to ask you is if you took this basic pattern for successful prayer and you overlaid it on the way you pray, how would you come out? Would you feel comfortable that this prayer is a pattern of your own prayer life? I'm not saying that to induce any guilt here, because I want to tell you that when I did that and asked that same question for myself, I didn't do so good. Because I find myself constantly slipping back to a me focus. Maybe that's you. But that me focus keeps me from a powerful prayer life. I want to see results. Don't you want to see results? Don't you want to step into the spiritual realm and know that you have a Father who cares for you? If so, it's important that you follow these basic fundamental patterns. We know that in all the other areas of life, don't we? We pay hundreds of dollars for tennis lessons, hundreds of dollars for golf lessons, swimming lessons, fishing lessons, scuba lessons, piano lessons, aerobic lessons, because we understand that without establishing some good basic habit patterns for each of those activities will doom ourselves to frustration at best and maybe failure at worst. Do you think it's any different in the Kingdom of God concerning spiritual disciplines? No. There's fundamental patterns of success and this prayer offers us a way to shape and direct our prayers. Now wouldn't it be great if in 1993 if we did nothing else, because I want us to be a praying church, that we took this simple model and over the year continually filtered our prayer life through it. And I believe if we did, and many of us do already, I believe it would be amazing the kinds of results you would see specifically in your life and in the body corporately. Jesus, the Son of God, found it necessary to pray. And he prayed disciplined, fundamental, fundamentally sound prayers. And when these guys asked him, How do you pray? he said, Do it this way. This way. Now, in verses 5 through 13, there's some encouragements to pray. It begins with a story because Jesus follows us up with a story. He says, This, suppose one of you have a friend and shall go to him at midnight. Now, that's the key word there. You might underline it it's midnight. And say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he shall answer and say, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, let's just take a moment and reflect on that story because it begins with a need that a certain individual has because a friend has shown up at his house and he is unable to meet that need because he has nothing for him. Look at verse 6. Remember? He says there, I have nothing. And if you're involved in spiritual life at all, you're going to find yourselves in occasions where people are going to have need of you to do something for them. And you're going to look within because of what they're asking for or what they really need from you, and you're going to go, I have nothing to give these people. This situation is way overwhelming for anything I can handle. I don't have the answers, and you're going to say, I have nothing. In a needy situation, you need a friend, don't you? And this particular neighbor has a friend, and he runs over to him at midnight, and he asks him for this bread. Now, the point of asking this neighbor is not to point out that God is some grouchy, resistant neighbor who's asleep. But you've got to wake up. That's not the point of the story. The point of it is this, that if a less than accommodating neighbor meets the request of his bold friend who comes to him of all times at midnight and asks him, and he still gets it, what this is encouraging us is how much more will your heavenly Father who is void of reluctance but long on love How much more will He rush to help you when you cannot do something on your own? That's that's what the invitation is. That's why Jesus goes on to say, because this ties directly into the story, verse 9, And I say to you, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it shall be open. He's saying our approach to every needy situation should not be to work it harder, work longer. What should come to our minds is first in a needy situation to either ask, seek, or knock when we can't do it ourselves because we have a Father who longs to meet our needs. Now you know that ask, seek, and knock, in a sense, indicates three levels of prayer. The first ask is something you do maybe one time and just believe that you have it. For instance, in the book of James, if you'll remember, it says, if any man asks wisdom, let him ask of God, who will give it to him? You don't keep asking God for wisdom. There'll be times where somebody will ask you a question or need help from you and you're not sure what to do and the scripture implores you, just ask. And then it says, and believe and you'll receive it. One time. I've done that many times. I've been in situations here that's counseling, or whether it's uh, situations with family, where I feel paralyzed, I don't know what to do. It just happened the other day. And you sit there and you go, what do I do? And the answer is, if you're needy, ask and believe. And you know what's wonderful? It's when you receive. When suddenly something just comes out of the blue to your mind and you offer it and it reconciles the situation and you say, I've got a father. i really got one who loves me. That's one level of prayer. The second level, notice, is seek. And when you hear the word seek, you don't think of something you just do once. Uh, It denotes a process of time, doesn't it? Uh, Seeking something is a searching out of something that might take a period of time before you finally discover the answer. And you know, there's some issues in your life and my life that won't be resolved by just simply asking. It will require you seeking for a period of time. We see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. Remember he had that thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12? He couldn't understand why he had it. He felt it was restricting his ministry, so he started seeking God on it, asking him over and over about the removal of that thorn, and God wouldn't remove it. And over a period of time, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, he finally found his answer, that that thorn, that infirmity was given to him purposefully by God so that he it would keep him from exalting himself in all the great things that he had experienced from God and would allow him to continually trust God with his life because of that infirmity. Paul's words were, I learned that God's grace will be sufficient for me. He had his answer. Seek and you will find. There are some of you who right now are in very mysterious circumstances. You do not understand why things are going the way they're going. This is the level of prayer you need to be engaged in, is seeking. And over time, the promise is, you will find. There's a third level, knock. It, when you think about it, because you think about knocking, it kind of implies both time and repetition, going back. And there's a barrier there. Uh, Maybe there are things that you've always aspired to do, but you can't do them because there's a barrier. Maybe you don't have the money. Maybe you don't have the opportunity. Maybe the people aren't around to get you to that place. Uh, Maybe there are longings of your heart that you've prayed through that you really believe God wants you to have, but it just seems like there's no occasion or no opportunity for that to come about. Now, God has the privilege in those times, if you really hallow His name and want to do His will, He might come to you as He did Paul and say, you're not going to have that. But in many occasions, when we're knocking, we don't feel like God has said no. We just feel like there's no opportunity. And the invitation is, then keep knocking and believe. Because when you knock long enough, just like that neighbor at midnight, you'll receive. The door will be open to you. (laughs) I remember a friend of mine who was in graduate school. He had a longing for a mate. He was single and had a desire to be married, and, and uh, time went on and, and uh, there was no occasion for him, at least in his mind, to discover anyone that he could make a life partner, and so he just committed that he would begin to pray about that and ask God, you know, is it wrong for me to have this desire? Rather than feeling any hesitation on God's part in His Spirit, that longing just increased. And so he just began to pray. He didn't date, he just prayed. And uh, one day he came to me and he said to me, he said, Robert, you know, I was praying the other day, asking God for a godly woman, and this girl came to my mind that I met in camp five years ago. I said, well, how long did you know her? Oh, I only talked to her for about, oh, 30 minutes. But her name came to me and I thought, maybe I ought to write her. And I said, no, maybe you're crazy. That's (laughs) probably the problem. I think you've lost it here in your desperation. So he went back and prayed some more because he's a faithful guy and he remains this day a very faithful guy that I look up to. He came back to me and he said, no, he said, "Um, I think I ought to do that. And I said, well, where does she live? He said, I don't know. I hadn't seen her in five years. So he began to search back through those old networks and found out that she lived in Seattle, Washington. He didn't know anything about her. She might have been married for all he knew. And he wrote this very simplistic letter, was thinking of you, wondered how you're doing, what are you doing, and sent it off. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to be with him these next few weeks and <laughs> kind of encourage him when he gets more discouraged. But two weeks passed by, and this letter returns. And in this letter, she said, you know, I was just thinking of you the other day. What are you doing? And they began to exchange letters. And then they began to exchange phone calls. And six months later, she stepped off a plane in Dallas, Texas to meet him, and he said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. <laughs> it opened. And he, to this day, has a wonderful life partner. Now, I know every single here didn't hear anything else but this story, and that's, <laughs> what, <laughs> that's what you're going to carry out of here. Not prayer or anything. Just pray for a mate, and it'll be done for me. But I want you to know, wouldn't it be a sterile experience to go all the way through life and never receive? Never. To go through this next year and never find anything. To go through the next 12 or 24 months and never to see one door open for you. And it's not because there's a holy other up there or the big man. There's a father up there who's long on love and wants to give good gifts to his children if they'll just approach him. You know, one of the things that I want to avoid for this body of believers is that in 1993, we don't work any harder. I don't want to work any harder, do you? I don't want to work any longer hours I don't want to do anything more, but you know what? I would like to see a lot of answered prayer. I don't want to work this church through my life. I want to see this church graced through this life. But it can only be that, and we can only experience that when God's people pray, and not just offer undisciplined, uninstructed prayers, but offer up to the Father prayers through the school of prayer that focus first on God and His reputation and only then on me. But when it gets to me, it focuses very specifically on direction, forgiveness, and then my needs. But it's still very encouraging. This is how the passage ends at verse 11. Look, it says, Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? I mean, what kind of father would that be? Or if he's asked for an egg, he will not give his son a scorpion, Willie. See, God, God is not looking up there, you know, just to play games with us. Notice what it says in verse 13. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. That's what we like to do. That's what we just did, by the way, just a couple of days ago, right? How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit... To those who ask him. Now we end with the Holy Spirit. And some of you are probably saying, don't we already have the Holy Spirit as Christians? When you believe in Jesus Christ, don't you get the gift of the Holy Spirit? And the answer is certainly you do. But what Jesus is talking about here is not about the Spirit's presence. He's talking about the Spirit's power, the experience of the Spirit as things are received and as doors open and as you make new discoveries in the spiritual realm. That's the realm of the Holy Spirit. And every prayer uttered is in reality answered by the Holy Spirit. That's how it's answered. Not by just giving you those things. Those things do come. But the real answer to every needy situation, as it says on your outline, is the Holy Spirit. When we come to verse 13, He's named the Holy Spirit because prayer is in the finality a spiritual exercise. It's where you pierce into an invisible world. You open a door into a spiritual realm to make discoveries and that's what prayer is an invitation to do. And it's through prayer that ultimately you gain access access to an experience with the Holy Spirit but He gains access to your life as well. To probe it, to touch it, to ask hard questions, to offer, at many times, warm compassion. Is that true of you? Do we have those kind of experiences? If not, we need to go to school. We need to walk through this passage experientially in 1993 because the result of that growing encounter with the Spirit is life-giving power. A power that allows us to hear the voice of God. Have you heard it? A power that allows us to be strengthened by Him when our strength is failing. Have you felt it? A power to find wisdom when otherwise foolishness would have prevailed. Have you seen that in your own life? A power to open closed doors. A power to once again be freed from sin and to experience a fresh start in the morning. Have you experienced that? A power to find meaning and direction for your life. Do you know it? A power to be reconciled with people that in and of ourselves, all we have is bitterness towards. But through the touch of the Spirit, as we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who are indebted to us. We find help to let go of their indebtedness to us. Otherwise, we stay embittered towards them. Have you had that experience? That's what this prayer offers, life-giving power. And you know what? Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man, needed to pray. He didn't walk through this life saying, hey, I've got all that I need. No, He, by His very modeling, demonstrated that He needed Time with God, time alone with God in a disciplined way to focus on Him so that He could have power for His life. And He said, guys, if you want that, because you've seen it and it does come from prayer, then follow the directions. I can think of no more significant New Year's resolution for this year than for God's people here to pray. So let's do that right now. And we're going to take just a moment here, a few moments, and I want to walk you back through the prayer and give you an opportunity to express this pattern prayer to God. And we want to start with God as a father. And what I would like to encourage you as you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed is I want you to think not of your earthly father as good, as He might have been, or perhaps the um, lost feelings that you might have about Him. But as you think about Him as Father, I want you to think about one who is predisposed to loving you. Strong, willing, desirous of loving you. Objective, truthful, yet compassionate and forgiving let that concept of Father embrace You as we pray. Father. And as we come to Him, as we stand before Him and we say, Hallowed be Thy name. Open up your life and let Him look in and see if there are any doors that are closed where the conditions there are less than honoring. Would you open those doors and say, Lord, I need help here. Thy kingdom come. Help me to do your will in these areas. Maybe you have request. Ask. Seek. Knock. Is there someone you need to forgive? Then forgive. And is there some dangerous situation around you right now that is tempting you, seducing you, luring you into its black hole? Then you have a very clear Father, clear-eyed, whose aim is perfect. Ask Him to lead you away from that temptation. Father, I pray in this new year we would be a church of prayer that we would not forget this essential, this most necessary thing. But Father, I say that not because I want us to feel obligated to pray, but because, as I read in Your Word, I desire for myself and for all my brothers and sisters in the audience, I desire that we might experience the richness of your kingdom that you so want to give, that you so wait to give for those who would come and simply ask. Father, bless us. Grace us through this next year. And may at the end of the year we give glory and honor to your name for what you did, for what we received. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.